0: Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sackman, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl and I have been doing this for a couple months now, and the usual caveats apply that we are not scientists, we're not epidemiologists, we are not physicians, so hopefully we still have something to bring to these issues around the pandemic and the virus itself, despite the fact we do not have uh, medical qualifications. We both come from uh, various backgrounds of data journalism and looking at topics like this with an analytical lens. So hoping to add some value to the discussion that way, and we hope you agree that we do so. So in this 10th episode, um, which you'll be able to find at Dangerous Exponents, along with our previous archive as well, we're going to dig into some of the key trade-offs that policymakers face around the pandemic, whether we're talking about lockdowns or the vaccination queue or really any public policy question Uh, and everything involved in this is is a trade-off whether you're you're talking about varying degrees of lockdowns versus their economic impact or prioritizing certain people in the vaccine queue over other people the list goes on and on and on forever Uh, everything is a trade-off but we got onto this topic and wanted to focus on it in this episode with one specific kind of concern uh, between the idea of deaths caused by the virus and a broader measure of Dolly's dis- disability-adjusted life years, uh, so so not just deaths but but long-term health effects and how we might quantify them, um, and the trade-off between those two, since since some of the people who are dying from the virus are already very very frail, very elderly, might be dying soon anyway. And sometimes prioritizing those people might mean putting other people with longer, potentially healthier lives in front of them, more at risk. So it's one of the many trade-offs we have to make. And let's start by just defining our terms, Carl. Um, A a DALI, a disability-adjusted life year. Can you fill us in on, on what we mean by that?
1: Sure, and this is going to be approximate, partly because there are a few related concepts quality adjusted life years, health adjusted life years, all with similar sounding acronyms. And and they're all trying to get at the idea that the the real impact of some kind of health event is not just in terms of do you survive or not, but how do you survive and for how long do you survive and what what would your life have been like without it? So it's trying to be a more granular and maybe precise measurement of, of the impact of a Disease in this case, but it could also be an accident um, or, you know, an intentional act that 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 hurts someone or kills someone. And it's often used to distinguish between kinds of threats to health that tend to affect people who are older more often, or people who already have some kind of uh, health condition that that is affecting their quality of life and perhaps their lifespan, versus other events like. Car accidents, like homicide or suicide, and and also like certain diseases, like AIDS, that affect younger people who are otherwise healthy, and is significant because simply counting deaths can can obscure this point. And when we're deciding on societal trade-offs around investing in treatments or preventative steps, um, awareness, you know, all sorts of measures that we can take to increase public health, we do ultimately have to, to spend our scarce resources somewhere, and you can end up in different places depending on what measure you use.
0: Yeah. And it's those, those places that I think we really want to dig into, it's like what decisions are actually being, being made, either informed by this sort of framework or, or possibly, but not actually informed by this sort of framework. So just to, to put, to put a couple numbers on things to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, one example number that stuck in my memory is for instance, uh, the Dolly framework says that a person who's suffering from Alzheimer's or a- another form of dementia uh, that costs them about two thirds of their quality of life for lack of a better word. I'm probably not getting the terminology exactly right, but this framework would say that three years of, of alzheimer's affected life is roughly equivalent to one healthy year and you can go down the list of all sorts of different afflictions and i think that was the, that was the worst of them all uh, but things go from two years of afflicted life being equivalent to to one year of healthy life to to things that are closer to 1.2 versus 1 and and so on but i think these sort of trade-offs make people uncomfortable and I I I want to dig into that. So, so Carl, ha, do you think that dollies are a, I mean, a, a potential way for for politicians to actually thinking about, think about this to actually make policy choices based on trade offs that get so technical so quickly?
1: I think maybe internally, although internal. Government deliberations tend to become external. I think it's just so hard to to sell publicly. I, I, I don't think we're doing a great job. And, and I realized after I gave my initial answer, I didn't even really just try to explain flat out what the the measure is trying to do. Partly because what it's trying to do is really tough. And you gave an example, which is great. And what it's really trying to do is say, okay, this this disease is costing this many years of quality life compared to this disease. And the quality life measures are so difficult to make. So to, to make that estimate for Alzheimer's, maybe they surveyed people about, surveyed the public about you know how much they'd value a year in, in a, a state of full-blown Alzheimer's. Or they asked a panel of experts how the quality of life is is affected, but it, it's really an, an almost impossible thing to estimate even at a population level, let alone for an individual. And it tends to come off as callous towards the elderly and, and to a lesser extent maybe to people who have pre existing conditions that might be affecting their quality of life. Uh, and perhaps undersells, or at least can seem to undersell, the capability of people to. Both adapt themselves to a condition, and you know, reach the same quality of life once they've they've changed their life around their, their new health reality, and undersells their ability to kind of get the most out of their remaining time. So, it, it it makes a lot of sense in theory. I think it's appealing for the reason that, you know, if you can if you can save healthy children from a terrible accident, that that is. That feels intuitively maybe like it, it is uh, saving whole lives that, that could have existed uh, compared to someone who is near the end of their expected lifespan, but actually making that trade off and and selling it to the public, which includes voters who are elderly and their children and grandchildren is is very, very tough, and so I can understand why people tend to just kind of default to, to lives saved.
0: Yeah, it it is. It gets ethically very complicated very quickly. And that's why usually when you see these kind of discussions, A, they tend to be pretty wonky. Like this isn't the sort of thing you usually come across on the evening news. But if you dive into certain forums and certain types of academic discussions, the, the collies and dollies are the, the coin of the realm. And often where they are the coin of the realm is... In discussions of where to spend medical dollars, so if, if setting aside the, the coronavirus pandemic for a moment, if you're thinking about, let's say, two obscure diseases that we could throw um, research money at, then if one of them is killing old people, one of them is killing young people, all else equal, I know I'm, I'm glossing over a huge amount of complication, but bear with me, all else equal, maybe you would choose to throw the money at, one, at the disease that affected younger people because... You are, um, I mean, you are potentially saving more years of life, more healthy years of life. And frankly, you have to make that decision. That's the, And that's the thing that I think gets gets lost in, in some of the ethical discuss- discussions is you have to make the decision. There is a finite amount of resources available and we can immediately come back to the pandemic here, even though it feels like you know, the U.S. government is kind of inventing these trillions of dollars for for various um, various bailouts and, and and health initiatives and so on it, it, resources are finite the amount of time that physicians and researchers have is finite the amount of resources in terms of hospital beds is finite these choices have to be made so at some point we're deciding are we are we trying to save 90 somethings from death or are we trying to save 30 somethings from long-term complications or, or something like that, that might, that might not end in, in death anytime soon. And, and I think that that's one of the key questions that gets, that gets skipped often. So Carl, you ended your, your last comment with the idea that we, we usually end up just talking about deaths, that, that politicians end up targeting that number. I mean, do you think that's the, that's the default that if, if if you don't embrace an alternative framework like like Dolly's, are you just optimizing to save lives right now? I mean keep the keep the death toll attributable to COVID as low as possible?
1: Yeah, and I think that it's somewhat inevitable for a couple of reasons. One, it's the most straightforward thing to count it's still not straightforward at all and there's a lot of controversy around cause of death even aside from covid because it's it's usually not a single cause of death and there's usually a cascade of system failure and and which which um which factor gets the cause Um, and you know that's given rise to all sorts of COVID skepticism which i think is unwarranted Cause I think there's this idea of oh somebody already had a pre-existing condition well I think half of people have have one depending on how you define that and it wasn't killing them they were they were all set to live many more years often young people have them and and it's not a, a terminal diagnosis and it was COVID that that um that made that condition deadly or, or or you know turned them from being having some kind of chronic illness they were living with to to dying but you know you can you can basically there's always a body. It's like why homicide stats are tend to end up being the the default most common crime stat because it's so much less subject to how you count things locally, and it's also just so um, we're so used to counting that way. It's how we've we talk about the toll of of past wars and and terrorist attacks and um gun violence every year it's it's the it's the unit that's become standard and that that you can associate very clearly with people if it's if 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 that is the number of people who have died that is a number of people whereas the number of life years lost or or fractional life years lost is is a harder thing to grasp um and you know we were even able to compare across countries uh with with the current disease using using deaths in a way that case counts is much fuzzier because of, of testing penetration and reporting. So it it does feel somewhat inevitable, but there are these conversations underneath it that even if they don't directly cite dollies are kind of using that logic by saying, Oh, well, these are deaths that would have happened. We're shifting these deaths forward, but they would have happened over the next three years or these, these deaths are being attributed to COVID when really they should have been attributed to the, the other, um, Condition that the person had, uh, even though mortality is is just a condition of being alive. So I I do think we we tend to end up back here, but that there there is some d- discontent underneath about it that that re- that is related to this awareness that it really doesn't capture everything, and that's even if we put aside the sort of broader systemic health health system effects that uh, can lead to. Um, impacts on health in other ways that aren't counted directly by coronavirus cases or hospitalizations or deaths.
0: Yeah, that's a good point that, that a lot of these deaths are ones that like, people understand that a lot of these deaths are ones that m- might not have happened exactly the same time certainly not exactly the same way as they have happened but might have occurred in the next few years or or sooner and or might have occurred because something else struck these people who were already already in bad shape and we can sort of think think of that as one baby step in the direction of of a dali approach like saying there's there's two kinds of coronavirus deaths there's the the avoidable ones and the unavoidable ones like that's it's I could not come up with a less technical term, but I think you probably get get my drift there that like there's the pure coronavirus deaths and there's the ones where the virus just kind of pushed someone over the edge as something else would have would have done sooner rather than later. And it, it's not nearly as sophisticated as a DALI approach, but it, it yeah, I think some some policy some policy is reasonably targeted more at the uh, the avoidable coronavirus deaths, which which you'd understand. Uh, I mentioned earlier the the idea that that ethical considerations tend to push us in the direction of simply counting deaths. But one thing that's fascinating to me is how these debates change when you push them from the global to the local. And the econo- the economist Alex Tabarak from Marginal Revolution he's uh, he's was one of the first people to push the first doses first idea. Uh, he made a, what I thought was a really elegant point about that, that whatever you think about the the society-wide risks of of only giving one dose to people of the vaccine instead of giving them the, the two doses on the, the officially approved schedule is, let's say... Y- two doses are available for you and you have the choice of taking them both yourself on schedule or you can take one and give one to your spouse. Otherwise your spouse won't get one. What do you do then? And I mean, I suppose reasonable people could answer that in different ways, but I think a lot more people would say, give my spouse the second dose than would say first dose is first for the entire population. And I think you can make the same case that a lot of elderly people, especially ones with a lot of at-risk descendants uh, might say, you know, I've had a good life. I want this hospital bed to go to better use or I want this this whatever resource to go to people who need it more and have more life in front of them. Um, and so don't worry about me. I'll, I mean, I was going to go anyway, then I'll be fine. Uh, I mean, do you think there's... Is there any way to scale that up to to think in those terms where where it's not so icky anymore to say that, you know, some people are going to die and that's okay, rather than just putting all of our resources towards keeping the death rate low. I mean, is that, is that a fool's errand? Or is there some way to think about things that might, might be profitable and push us more in the dolly sort of direction?
1: So your example of one person, let's say in her eighties who is okay to get less or no care if it means someone younger and healthier does is is plausible and it probably is in effect happening and has happened i mean we know in new york city that the the death rate at home just skyrocketed at the peak of the pandemic last spring and in some cases people were turned away by uh, were not picked up by paramedics because of hospitals being so full and in some cases people probably just never called and 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 chose to to ride it out and and whatever happened happened without care at home or without, you know, professional medical care at least in terms of scaling up i think involuntarily that's already happened we haven't really talked about it that much as a country that i've seen it's it's a very uncomfortable topic we've talked about kind of in advance of it happening but it seems like there's been some rationing of care in hospitals and and broader you know hospital systems and, and regional medical systems that have become overloaded that they've formed plans and pretty much carried them out even if they haven't really liked to talk about it in terms of who gets the icu beds who gets the ventilators who gets the the uh, probably the most important part the really um, low ratio of patient to staff um, to, to check on and care for and I think even though again, it's really uncomfortable to talk about there is a kind of dolly framework to it that it is the the 80 something even if she hasn't chosen to, to yield some of the care she'd normally get it, it might be chosen for her and it might have happened already. So you know I think I think it has it, it is something that, Every system is kind of prepared for. There are, there are panels of experts to to decide on the system they're going to use. It's it's very sensitive to, for them to talk about. Um, but maybe you're asking for about more. Are you asking about more of like a a in advance way for someone to say maybe beyond a, a do not resuscitate order, like hey, if if the if the system is really under stress and other people need this, I'll. I'll pass not, not exactly like a a conditional suicide note, but like a conditional uh, foregoing medical care because other people need it.
0: I, I wasn't thinking of those terms at all, but that's an, an, an interesting idea. And again, maybe it's just because. People like you and I, Carl, are always thinking in terms of probabilities whereas most of the population probably is not, but that kind of brings us back to the same place where we started like if i'm if I'm thinking about writing a note like that, mean it, it's the same sort of of difficulty of giving end of life instructions already because if if you are if you are giving those sort of instructions ahead of time, you're going to say if if x happens, then pull the plug if y happens, then wait this much time and then pull the plug if z happens. Uh, give me a chance to, to, to pull out of it or whatever. I I don't know much about this subject, but I know that these things can get very complicated very quickly. And if you start adding the layer of, uh, of situations where medical care might be more likely to save me and, and me having to lay out in advance conditionally, like if, if hospital beds are 90% full, then don't take me to the hospital for this condition. I mean, you can see how, that gets really really complicated really fast but i mean in a sense that is the sort of thing i'm thinking about i'm not thinking about individuals making those choices um, because it would become so enormously complicated and because it's i mean totally impractical uh but i guess it keeps coming back to the fact that if if policy or individuals or or hospital administrators or whoever are not explicitly making these choices they are implicitly making some choice. And and I would like to know better what those choices are. And you made a good point, Carl, that hospitals are are were deciding this from very early on in the pandemic. You, know, you hear anecdotal things about uh, elective surgeries being indefinitely postponed. And when you hear elective surgeries, you often think like a nose job or something, but elective surgeries are, are a very broad subject that could include uh things that feel pretty necessary even if they are in, in the sense that they they're not, not going to kill you but it'd be really nice to get them or e- even rounds of chemotherapy getting postponed so hospital administrators made those choices and in some cases i mean these are probably extreme cases but in some cases that meant i mean hospital beds were empty and and there were there were nurses who stayed home because hospitals overprepared for that and that's, I mean, that must be the toughest part of planning from an administration perspective that obviously you can't know exactly how the pandemic is going to develop from one week to the next, one month to the next. So there's there's a probability component in this as well. And I mean, it's one thing to use a measure like DALI's to prioritize Research dollars into cancer versus research dollars into AIDS versus research dollars into malaria. Um, it's yet another thing to prioritize, like care for people with manageable types of cancer right now versus a potential of needing care for a lot of people um, from a pandemic situation like we have now. In, do you, th- given that so much of this is tied up with? With probabilities that we don't have a total grasp on. I mean, given that so much of our concern about uh, about hospital capacity is, I mean, it's always it's always been thinking in terms of what will we do for the worst case scenario. I mean, is it even possible to think in this sort of in this sort of more analytical framework when we're comparing things that are actually the case versus low probability worst case scenario sort of things? Or I mean. Do we just have to adopt a totally different framework at that point and prepare for the worst, whatever it means?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because it's. I think we do need like a pretty complicated framework if we're going to be analytical about it. All dollies and and their cousins are are all kind of linear measures. So you add one one more adjusted life year, and and it's it's one more to the total. Whereas hospital capacity is is kind of this. Either you're you're under it's not as simple as this, but if you're under it by enough of a margin, then business can go on as usual. Elective surgeries, which you could describe as like surgeries that are not emergency enough that you need that you can schedule them in advance, but <laughs> that's a pretty low bar, and they can still be, as you said, very important. Those can go on. Uh, you mentioned like potentially people not even coming to work because you were clearing capacity. Um, there can be some margin for that and and in some cases it's because they're sick with coronavirus or they're or they're quarantining um and then once you get near the threshold and over the threshold it, it's a very nonlinear process it's not like being at 100% is is 25% worse than being at 80% of of capacity um it's it's much 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 worse and
0: and then 105% is Way, way, way worse than that. Yeah,
1: exactly. And and the process that determines how many people need your services is itself a nonlinear process and as the name of this podcast, Dangerous Exponents, suggests. So it's it's a very difficult um situation to to manage. And, you know, this goes for that may sound COVID specific or specific to diseases that multiply in that way, but it kind of goes for spending too. I mean, one of the things I think we've seen vaccine rollout has been disappointing, but vaccine development was not. And part of what worked so well there was, there was this surge of spending and this guarantee of, of buying of the vaccine. And you could say that's a model for future disease spending, that if you just kind of are shuffling between uh, two accounts a little bit, you might not move either of them very much. But if you do a kind of burst of, of spending with, with um, some sort of financial protection for the people developing the treatment that can really accelerate um, the quality and and speed of the um, of the development. So, um, you know, all of these decisions are like a little difference can can make can make an, an enormous difference. And one example that maybe ties in that concept to something we were talking about before is this idea that rationing has already happened. And there's this um, Twitter thread, I think, for the UK, lays out some of the numbers you'd want to see in terms of trade-offs and demand for different uh, different sort of stages of treatment and outcomes by, by age of the people getting COVID. And you see the, the very oldest people being a very large share of the number who get sick, Um, the number who die, but they're not as large a share of the people who use the ICU because it's been determined that they have worse outcomes with ICU treatment, so they're less likely to be put in the ICU. Well, that's making a trade-off decision. Some of them would do well in the ICU. Probably, maybe a lot more of them would go to the ICU if there weren't such a demand on it, but given the demand, they're not going to be necessarily the first to go there. And that could also shift your decisions because if you've been focused on on that population and, and them not getting sick, not being too much of a demand on hospitals, um, maybe you also have to look at, at a younger population. So it gets really complicated because there are a lot of different resources in play that are, are being taxed right now. And and by the way, the other, you know, I mentioned offhandedly, the nurse who has to quarantine for two weeks, The 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 long-term strain on the health system and on health workers is enormous too and and that also is a is a price to all this uh, in terms of people dying getting sick quitting simply being strained and, and not being as as good at their jobs um, so all of that is is a factor too in how far you push the the system
0: yeah I'm I'm glad you bring that up the long-term effects are something that don't get discussed very much. I mean, it does. you do see it sometimes, uh, specifically with the strain on the health system, and understandably so, that when you're in the middle of a crisis, you're worried more about the crisis than about what happens after the crisis. But I will be very interested to see, once this is all under control and academics gather a lot more data and all these things start to be finalized and we start to see these long-term effects trickle out, at that point, then it's, we're no longer in the domain of policymakers. We're now in the domain of, of academic research. And that's the time when th- things like Dali's and Kali's will, will take over the dialogue. And most people won't be paying attention anymore. Uh, I won't even be paying as much attention. But at that point, people will start to quantify these various things. And I mean, it, it, it it feels weird and morbid and I'm a little bit of ashamed of, but in some ways I'm looking forward to getting getting the postmortems, just because I'm curious, like, well, why was it so bad for Sweden and not as bad for Norway, for instance? We can we can speculate on that all we want, but in, I want to have a lot more numbers before I come to any conclusions about that, or why did some states have certain outcomes and others not? Well, there's been a, a a slew of papers lately about the state by state uh, effects of of various types of lockdowns and, and how that affected behavior and the spread of the virus and that sort of work will continue to multiply and it's it's easy to do when it's over i mean that's one of my main points here is that we'll be able to quantify this stuff we'll be able to put on our our wonky hats and and say this is how many dollies were saved or lost by this particular decision um this is an alternative that might have saved or lost more And at that point, there's no speculation. There's no concern about probability. It's all just, this is what happened. This is how we quantify it. And I don't think anyone would disagree that that's the right way to do that kind of work. I mean, at at that point, you can go deeper than just counting deaths or looking at hospital capacity or trying to estimate economic impact. You can go deeper than that and really dig into the details. And my my question about all that is is how much of that we should be trying to do now and i realize i'm kind of circling around the same question so apologies if i'm if i'm repeating myself a little bit but we keep establishing that that in general policymakers are leaning towards just counting in terms of of deaths uh, we get we start feeling icky about making these ethical decisions about saving some lives and not but as you point out rightly carl hospitals are used to making those sort of prioritizations. Um, they have to, so they've developed certain frameworks for doing so. So at, at the societal level, like, should we be seeing more people doing rough calculations of benefits and losses of, of certain policies? Like, should we be, should we be requiring policymakers to, to show their work more rather than just proclaiming from, from on high that this is the best decision, therefore go forth and, and, and do our work. I mean, I guess that's it should should we be asking for more more showing of work from the people who are making these decisions
1: absolutely and i I think the the simplest example this the simplest way that someone can do that for me that i I have not felt I've gotten as a citizen of the u s and of the world uh is to to show me that there is something that they're tracking and how that measure of kind of danger and um pandemic threat level if you want is going to then affect decision making now i think in new york state i have a lot of questions and criticisms about the the leadership in new york state and new york city but there at least has been since pretty early on a pretty clear plan for if the rate of tests that are positive, and we can do a whole episode about that as a measure, but if the rate of tests that are positive goes to a certain level, that will trigger certain restrictions. And then if it drops down below that level again, those restrictions will go away, more or less. And I think having a plan like that and showing that we will continually monitor that measure, adjust where we're at, and then and, and keep you posted, is very simple and it's not enough, but it's a, it's a lot more than I think a lot of people got uh, in a lot of places, and certainly than I, I think anyone feels like they got at a, a national level in the U.S. Um, so I think that's really important: is is recognizing the dynamic nature of this, that this is something that we are constantly recalculating. Um, you know the the other the other thing that two other things that I think we could stand to hear more about. That would be helpful, in some ways, or I would find helpful. One is we're counting deaths, and it's grim and it's awful, and, and and the numbers keep rising, and that's true in the U.S. and it's it's past four hundred thousand, and it's true internationally where I think it's past two million. Not just for positivity's sake, but for other reasons, there is a, a, a missing number there, which is kind of like deaths prevented. Uh, we don't really know where we'd be right now if if the virus had been left unchecked in certain places or everywhere. But we have an idea from let's say early New York City or early in certain parts of Italy um, or in like a, a few regions we've read about that unwittingly became these sort of test subjects for what happens if you don't change anything in response to this uh, deadly, very contagious virus. and. I, I think it would be heartening to know what that number is, not to say our leaders have done a great job, but more the people have sacrificed a lot and and what they've collectively accomplished. but I think it's also useful for reminding us constantly of the trade-offs that like we are gaining this very tangible thing by doing all the things that are making our lives more difficult and making. Us more economically vulnerable and so on so at least remembering that that is on one side of the ledger and I said deaths prevented but you could say Dolly saved or, or whatever it is um, you know we talked we had a whole episode about R. if you can keep R to one you've accomplished an enormous amount or even 1.3 relative to R being three or higher and that's worth remembering that that, that is a benefit that we've accrued and um, and then the last point is to to, to show me as, as, as leaders that you're taking into account the nonlinear benefits as you can bring cases back down to, close to zero. And I think we've also talked about this before, so I'll just say it briefly, that if you, if you're, let's say, Melbourne, Australia, and you get to a level where many other places around the w- world would tolerate that and say, okay, go out and and go back to something like your previous lives because the number of cases is much lower than it was at peak. Um, you never really get a handle on the cases that are left. You don't really have a chance to trace uh, and contain future outbreaks. And if you can extend lockdown longer than many other places tolerate, then maybe you can come back to much closer to normal life for much longer later on and so you're trading off a bit of the now for more of the future and that was something that US states pretty much couldn't or didn't do and so no state really got to that point and I think even if a governor or a president or prime minister decides not to get to that level that should be an explicit trade-off and it should be clear to everyone that there's a really big difference between being down to maybe 10% of peak cases or 20% of peak cases and being down to close to zero.
0: Yeah, that's a, a really key point and one that, as you say, it's been un- underreported, underused by policymakers and so on, that that's an, that's an enormous difference. That I mean, it, It's kind of like it, it, if you could measure how many cockroaches are in your apartment, that like obviously you want it to be zero, but if it gets much above zero, then You've got a problem. There's there's no way you can just live harmoniously with with a few. Those few will get out of control very fast, and that's a a a very rough, approximate analogy, but I think it's a useful analogy to to how the virus works when it's unchecked and untraced. Um, So, I mean, yeah, that's and and you've you've opened up the discussion to a whole different direction in in trading off long term versus short term benefits. That that yeah, do you want to have a do you want to have a mild lockdown for a year until we get herd immunity through vaccination? Or do you want to have a very strict lockdown for maybe a month or two months? I mean, it's going to be tough to, to say in advance exactly what those parameters are. But I think it's fair to say that if you do commit to something like what you're suggesting, Carl, then, then a strict lockdown is what you need. But it will mean that you can get back to normal sooner, so there is a trade off there. You can probably start to stick some economic estimates on those numbers and and come to those conclusions but th- let's let's close with one final final sort of big question about all this is is I agree with with you Carl very strongly that I, I want to be seeing more back of the envelope estimates. I want to know what sort of criteria our our leaders are using to make decisions i mean I want to see those numbers. I not only want to see those numbers, but I want to know that those numbers are, are fairly reliable and, and being kept on a continuous basis. Uh, but we've talked a lot throughout this episode on how fuzzy some of these numbers are, like, for, for instance, knowing how many deaths are directly attributed to the virus. As you say, Carl, we could try to estimate. Uh, how many deaths we've saved via lockdown, but that would be a, a, a tough modeling exercise on its own. Um, converting all these numbers into economic impact, whether we're talking about the the effect of the deaths or the the illness itself, or we're talking about the effects of the lockdown. Uh, you and I both want to see this work being done, hopefully more, more publicly and with better data, but when we're talking about questions as big, like, do you make this society-wide change or not? Or how do you choose between these two policy options? Um, given all these approximations, all these things we don't know, some of the the, the risk of, of low probability events and planning for that that I brought up earlier, in, if we stick all that into an equation, do we know we're getting anything useful at all? Or are all these numbers just so approximate that like it's garbage in garbage out? I mean, is it, is it worth even trying?
1: So we're, we're here recording in January, 2021. And I think if we were talking about this in April, May, 2020, it would, it would feel maybe futile right then to measure. And maybe also we'd be hopelessly optimistic and think we, by the time we we could figure this out, it won't matter, but not, not in the world ending way, but in the pandemic ending way. But where we are now, where we're still very much in the pandemic and many parts of the country, of the world are at or near their their peak. And yet we also have all this information, all these very different approaches that we can evaluate, even as their works in progress and, and our assessment of some of them individually might change. We do have a lot of information. And it's also a really low bar right now, especially in the US. In a few hours from when we're recording, we'll have a new administration and the the new york times ran a column yesterday making the point that their initial plan for how to change the approach to the pandemic is so maddeningly obvious that it's it's frustrating it hasn't happened but it also means they can very quickly change course and be an instant giant improvement without anything major so i think there's enough unfortunately there's enough opportunity here to very quickly clearly improve on on what we've done so far and you know, one of the things that this pandemic exposed, certainly in the US, but I think in many parts of the world, is inadequate reporting on the data you would need to be able to to measure things, even simple things, let alone the complex measures we've been talking about, and to track them over time, but that it's gotten a lot better. Uh, journalists and and researchers and some government officials have really pushed to improve these systems because it's become all the more important to, to track these things globally. And that's created a much bigger opportunity here than we had in the early days of the pandemic to to make at least back of the envelope calculations that we can share with the public to to show our work. So I'm I'm optimistic given that there isn't that much that's already happened that it, it can get a lot better quickly without getting great.
0: And I would add to that that. It- I think even if the, the results of the back of the envelope calculation end up being so so vague or so approximate as to be worthless, then I think you still make them and still come to that conclusion. We've seen some modeling exercises have extremely wide or extremely large margins of error to the point that they are basically worthless, but that doesn't mean the exercise itself is worthless. It's it, coming to c- the conclusion that we don't have, have the information to know something is not the same as saying we shouldn't have bothered to, to do the exercise in the first place. Uh, and we could probably see more of that in academia in general than we already do, but certainly it, it would be good to, to just have a better grasp on what we know and what we don't know about the pandemic and whether that means telling us, pointing out where we need better data or where we need better modeling approaches or where we simply need to make decisions from non-quantitative, um, from for non-quantitative reasons because we can't do the modeling or we can't come up with a solid answer then that's valuable to 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 know that so i think trying to quantify things has a value in itself even when it doesn't spit out a clear number or a clear answer in which direction to go so carl i think that's that that's the last thing i had to say is there anything final you want to add before we wrap up this episode
1: i just want to agree with what you said and say that those exercises can justify going with with non-model based decisions, whether it's just consensus of experts or whatever, and also they can tell you what you need to measure better. So if we go through that exercise now and realize we still have too wide of an uncertainty band to to make a clear decision, maybe in March we, we have slightly better data and, and can answer it. And I think right, while it's not explicitly for that reason, we have way better hospitalization data than we had earlier in the pandemic because there was a recognition that that was such a crucial indicator. And uh, so we had to go out and get it. And And in fact, the government did more to release it. So these things can, get, can improve with demand.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely. And hopefully they will. So that has been episode 10 of the dangerous exponents podcast. You can find all of our past episodes at dangerous exponents.com. We've also still got a, a feedback form up there. So we'd love to hear from more of you about what you what you like about the show, what you really like about the show, what you really, really like about the show, and so on. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. Um, do share your thoughts. Uh, Carl is at Carl Bialik. So We'd love to hear more from you about what you think, about things we got horribly wrong and so on. I'll stop giving examples of types of feedback you can give. You can probably figure it out on your own. So we'll be back soon with another episode um, and maybe even some good news one of these weeks. Uh, So thanks again, Carl, and we will see you next time.